This past week, I was just teaching class on, on uh, leadership administration. One of the books I had the guys read is a book called Leadership Lessons from a UPS Driver. And I, it's a neat story, and it really illustrates a lot of truths, but it's, it's about how the culture of we, that's what they call it inside of UPS, is something where he learned leadership. He learned the value of that principle as a foundational principle of their, of their whole model of, uh, of how they did business. And in that context, he started as a driver who ascended in leadership, ultimately to become the president of UPS. So you have a success story of a man, but he learned it within a cultural value. He learned the importance of having a, a common culture within the company, protecting it. He learned the things that eroded away, the, what they had to do to keep reinforcing it. But then that value of that cultural norm, if you will, that value that spread throughout the company that elevated their performance above others and allowed the company to become successful, he shares that story. And there's so many leadership principles in there. And I'm not doing a sermon on leadership, okay? So. Why do I share that? Well, because in 2 Timothy, we're dealing with Paul's last letter. I mean, the apostle's last letter to his traveling companion, a partner in ministry, a man who was mentored by Paul, Timothy. And in these last words come some very instruct, some tremendous instructions and really see in so many ways the heart of Paul being poured out for his young friend, his traveling compatriot, his disciple. And he's giving instructions not just to Timothy, though, but also to the church, to the church in Ephesus, and even by extension to us this morning. And so I hope as we read these words, we hear these words, as coming something very dear to the apostle. And he is going to hit some grand themes, and one of them in chapter 1 is this whole idea of unashamed. In fact, you know, in Romans, most of you are familiar, you, you hear that theme come again. Maybe I should say you heard it first in Romans, you hear it re-echoed in, in Timothy. And so here in 2 Timothy, there's this glorious theme of not being ashamed of the gospel or of those who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. And then there, this is, Paul talks about this is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed because I actually know who I believed. And I'm convinced that he is guarding all that I've entrusted. He's guarding me, guarding all that has been entrusted to me all the way uh, to that day when I'm going to meet him. And then he points to another example who was not ashamed of Paul and actually came to Paul in chains and ministers to him. And so we hear this theme of unashamed ringing out and we're called to be unashamed. In fact, we looked at, and so just, just for a word of remembrance, back in 1 Timothy, if you look uh, back in 1 Timothy, where Paul tells Timothy to fan the flame. So following this whole, uh, this commissioning to Timothy and reminding him not to be ashamed, he calls on Timothy to fan the flame. Back in verse 6, for this reason I remind you to fan the flame of the gift of God, in which you, in which, I'm sorry, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. And so we looked at the whole idea of is fan the flame to be unashamed. To remember who you are in Christ, what God has called you to do. Fan the flame of desire that God has given. Fan the flame of the calling of God, the commissioning of God. So you will not be ashamed of the gospel. 
We then move in in that theme of unashamed that looks like a necessity. If we're really going to be unashamed, we're going to engage in the kind of ministry that actually embraces even suffering as a good gift from God. This is what he tells him, that we can embrace that suffering for the sake of the gospel as a good gift from God. If we're going to be unashamed, then there's something foundational we need. We need grace. I mean, in many ways, that should be a duh moment for us. Oh, I need grace? Yes, you do. In fact, you need grace this morning. To actually, that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God and work in your heart. You can't make that happen. I can't say to you, congregation, this morning, receive the Word, and you can make that happen. Only the Spirit of God can bring life to the Word, amen? It is the Spirit of God that brings life to the Word. It is the Spirit of God that actually illumines your mind to see the significance of what you're hearing we know, and we're looking at James and the two-path analogies, and that you know you can be the kind of hearer who hears but doesn't actually hear. You can be the forgetful hearer that you, you have gone through, and I am sure there's been more than a few Sundays in your life where the next day on Monday you weren't really sure what the preacher even talked about on Sunday. You heard, but you didn't really hear. You came to church, and maybe it was just because of you were tired, Maybe you were ill-prepared. Maybe life is just busy at the moment. In your mind, you have str- you're struggling to shut it down. You're str- struggling to shut it down. Some of you have lost nights of sleep. I know I have. At times where my mind is working on a problem, and I, I'm just, my brain is so engaged, it's like, would you be quiet? I want to go to sleep now, but I can't. And there's times where our minds are engaged in other difficulties in life. Those are weighing on us heavy, and we come to church, and yet we heard but didn't hear. There's lots of reasons it can happen, but here's what we need this morning. We need grace. I wonder how many times we actually pray for it before we come to the presence of God, to the place where he's told us to assemble, believing God plans on meeting with us here. Isn't that amazing? God plans to meet with us today, right here, right now. And has promised that his spirit will take his word and work in the lives of his children. I mean, we're all works in progress, just various states of that, right? That means we all came in here as people needy. And if we don't remember that, we come in here as people who are looking for maybe somebody else's need. You know, wives, you've done this more than a few times. The elbow got sharp and your husband needed that one. You know, or you thought, that you heard something and you just immediately came to your mind, somebody you know is struggling who needed to hear that. It wasn't you, but there was somebody you know that needed to hear that truth. And man, you're, you're hoping you're going to send them that sermon. You're going to share it with them because they needed it. Well, there's not one of us that walked in the store this morning that does not need to hear from God. And we need grace from God in order to actually live the life that God intends us to live. If we're going to fan the flame, if we're actually going to live as unashamed messengers, then we need a life that's full of grace. And that life is truly beautiful. A graceful life, grace-filled life, or you even say a graceful life, is beautiful. Because it is one that is actually pleasing to God. That's part of what something graceful is. It's aesthetically beautiful and pleasing. So a grace-filled life is filled with beauty because it's actually a life that's pleasing to God. 
And we see that Paul actually commands us to be strengthened by grace. It is a command. It's set as as in the mode of command in the Greek language. And so we're commanded to be strengthened. And then he's going to do, after this command, he's actually going to open up basically four metaphors or illustrations of what that looks like. So if you are being strengthened by grace, then these things will be true in an increasing fashion. So which is one of the things that you love about, uh, about how often in the scripture we're going to give it a command and then flow right out of that into, okay, this is what it looks like when that actually takes place. And so he's going to paint these vivid pictures for us on what it actually looks like to be strengthened by grace, what God's doing in the life. And so I'd like to begin by reading the, the text from 2.1 to, uh, down to verse 8. And then we're going to walk through this section. But in chapter uh, 2, in beginning verse 1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witness and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached by my gospel. If you're going to be strengthened by grace, you better keep your heart fixed on Christ because he's the source of all of that. He gives us this command. There's there's Paul sets forth a a you then or in light of this, in light of what I've said, and he's really pointing back. And remember, chapter 1 ends with the fact Paul is talking about those who deserted him, turned back on him. And then he really begins a shift then in chapter 2 because Timothy is not like that. Timothy is not like those who deserted Paul. He's actually like those who ministered to Paul continually. And so he sets the contrast. And so, Timothy, you stand in contrast. And you're a child and that going back to that relationship that whether Paul led him to Christ or simply was the key disciple in his life, you can decide that. But Timothy is treated as a son in the faith. Paul is instrumental either both to his salvation and growth or at least to his spiritual growth in shaping him and taking him along in ministry and shaping Timothy's understanding of what the ministry is. So he is a child to Paul. There's a very dear relationship between the two of them. And he commands Timothy to be strengthened by means of grace. It's it's by this mean, by this measure. Be strengthened by this grace that belongs to Christ. And this being strengthened, one of the interesting things about... The verbal tense, and I'm not just trying to teach Greek. Pastor Greg can do that much better than I can. But the point is is that it's a passive tense, meaning that this strength doesn't rest in you. You're responsible but dependent. I hope you always catch those things in Scripture. We're responsible to take the gospel to others, absolutely dependent on God to open blinded eyes. We're responsible to be strong in the Lord, but you don't have that strength in you. You need to be strengthened by grace, actually commanded by God. You be strengthened by grace. You're responsible, actually, to be strengthened by grace. But the strength does not rest in you. 
So responsibility comes with dependency, and they always go together. You're fully dependent on God to supply that strength. Aren't you glad you've been invited to a throne filled with it? That it's not hid out there mysteriously? That, oh, be strengthened by grace, I'm responsible. Where do I go to get this grace? The Lord actually tells us. And it's an amazing thing that God would take feeble sinners like us, weak, fallible, entrust us with a life-saving message that changes everything forever in the lives of those who receive it, and he uses vessels like us to actually accomplish it. I mean, I don't know what, I mean, we live in an incredible, I mean, there's, God has displayed his incredible beauty, his creativity, and all of creation. Uh, He displays that even in human invention and creativity because they're not the source of it, God is. Because after all, whatever material you used, if you had to go find and create that material yourself to create something, uh, you couldn't do it. You're operating in a world created by God, ruled by God, and all the things that men have done that we go, wow, isn't that cool, is because of God is cool. God is amazing. And humanity is simply using what God gave them. And he speaks into this grace that is sourced in Christ, and we want to know where it is. Well, it is a grace that actually Paul prays for in Ephesians. And you can look in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, Paul talks about bowing his knees. And Paul is demonstrating his humble dependence on the God of heaven. And he's praying to the Lord and saying, Lord, strengthen these people. Take the church of Ephesus. And this is what he's praying, that according to the riches of your glory, in connection to who you are, pour out more of that glory on the lives of your children so they're strengthened with power through your spirit in the inner man. And an amazing reality that at the day of salvation, when you came to Christ in faith, the Holy Spirit came to live and dwell in you. God intends to dwell with his people. And if you're among his people this morning, God's dwelling in you. And thus this place is called a temple of the Holy Spirit. God is here. Amen? He's not far away. He is not distant. He is here. In fact, he actually promises to be with you, always never leave you nor forsake you. You have gone nowhere without the Spirit with you, amen? And the reason that you can be strengthened by grace is because not because you have strength or you're sufficient. You are not sufficient for the day of battle. It does not rest in the strength of legs. It will not be in whatever external source you think is going to answer life's problems. It rests in the power of God and the power of God dwells in you. So Paul prays, Lord, strengthen your people by your power because you're dwelling with them. Second Timothy or Titus chapter 2, we know this text well. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Now note what grace does. It trains. It's a military term. It trains. It, it teaches. It enforces. It brings us to bear, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled lives. And part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Here's what grace does. Grace works through the Spirit in the inner man to strengthen us. And as that strength then is manifested in a renouncing of the world around us and its passions, living self-control and God-honoring godly lives, living that kind of life in this world, that's what grace does. 
And we receive it by going to the throne. We're called to draw near. And my question is, is do we actually pray like that? We know how we pray for one another. When's the last time you asked somebody to pray for you that you would be strengthened by power, with God's power, in your inner man? So you might be the witness God's called you to be. When have you prayed for somebody, for your, ask somebody to pray for you that whatever that difficulty you're dealing with, it could be in a personal relationship, it could be in a work situation, you may have financial pressure, but when have, beside asking people to pray for us for relief, when have we asked them to pray for God to strengthen us in the inner man that in the midst of the difficulty we endure in a way that looks and actually reflects our trust is in God, not in self? That our life would actually be a light of the gospel to those who are watching us go through those difficulties. Do we think, do we pray that way? What happens when a church actually prays that way? We have an illustration. Acts chapter 4, the apostles have been beaten. They leave rejoicing. They're being strengthened by grace. And they come back and they pray and they rehearse. They say, Lord, you look upon their threats and note what they pray. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. We just face the opposition of a culture that's trying to silence us. You know, woke culture is trying to silence Christians is not new. This is not new. It's new to us. It's new to this time in American history, but the pressure of an unsaved world to say, be quiet, be silent, keep it to yourself, is not new. The church has faced it from its very onset. The culture around them is pulling them in and saying, look, we can't beat Jesus out of you, but you stop sharing Jesus with anybody else. We tried beating Jesus out of you. It doesn't work. But we're going to beat you anyway because we don't want you going and sharing it to everybody else. And they immediately gather and what do they pray? They pray, Lord, help us to be bold in the face of opposition and keep preaching your word. What does God do? And when they prayed... The place in which they gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, strengthened in their inner man by the Spirit of God. And they continued to speak the word with all boldness. Now, is that just a New Testament gospel going forward thing? Is that just that transitional period in Acts we're talking about? Or is this what God calls us to do? To pray that the Spirit would give us boldness. I hope we're going to answer that way because Paul certainly asked the church to pray for him that way. He asked for the church to pray for open doors and boldness to go through those doors. And if the Apostle Paul prayed that way, then I think it's probably a pretty safe indication I need to ask others to pray that way for me. That one of the ways we need to be praying as a church is God grant us boldness. Grant us eyes to see the open doors in front of us and the boldness to go through them, and that would be an actual evidence of being strengthened by grace, a grace-filled life. God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power and a strong mind. Cowardice in witness is an evidence of a lack of grace. A grace-filled life is a bold life, not brash. 
boldness because we speak the truth in love. But folks, we have to speak the truth. Paul is pointing to Timothy, pointing to us that we need to live out this graceful life. And the good news is that if we're in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in us and will strengthen us and we're invited and welcomed to a throne filled with grace and God delights to give it. And that grace will enable us. We can live this way. As we look at these metaphors, as we look at these illustrations, don't look at them and to look at that and go, well, that's just so far out there. I, I won't get there. The reality is what he's doing for Timothy, what he's doing for the church, is look what grace accomplishes in your life. This is the kind of grace that is ready and available for you. Come and receive. Be strengthened by this grace. And this is what God is going to do in your midst. This isn't just a, like an aspirational thing. Be more this. He's saying, here's grace. Receive it and go do this because you can. Grace produces this in the lives of God's children. Expand your vision of what grace accomplishes in your life. If God just intended to save you from hell and take you to heaven, you would be there right now. If that's all salvation was, a rescue from eternal condemnation, then the day you got saved, you would have got transported to heaven because your life here would have ceased to have purpose. Your life did not end on the day of salvation. It has purpose and meaning, and God intends to continue working in you, both the willing and doing of his good pleasure, all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. And he wants you to live as victors, not victims, in a fallen and broken world. And you can live that way. You can be strengthened by grace and actually engage in fruit-filled ministries. We can live out the reality of our faith and have a credible testimony to the world so that when they call you a Christian, they know what they're saying. Pastor Greg's over in Turkey. One of the sad news out of the earthquake is Antioch, the place where believers were first called Christians, is largely gone. Christians aren't gone, though. Antioch is. Just one of those realities. This world is passing away, okay? It is not our home, praise the Lord. So what does it enable? Let's look at these four things. And hopefully through that, we expand our vision of what grace accomplishes. We expand our own understanding why we ought to be desperate, why we ought to be praying, why there shouldn't be a day where we're ever not found at a throne filled with grace, asking for it, asking God to strengthen us in the inner man, praising God that the Spirit of God who dwells in us is greater than the Spirit that's in the world. And we can live as those who have an overcoming faith that overcomes all the temptations of sin. Whatsoever is not a faith is sin. So when I live by faith, you know what I'm not doing? I'm not sinning. And the Spirit of God is enabling me to see life, understand the Word of God, and actually live by faith and not live in fear. God's grace enables us to be faithful teachers. And he tells Timothy, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men will be able to teach others also. And so here's this reminder, Timothy. Timothy traveled with Paul. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what those conversations were like. I mean, I like to think that. I mean, just imagine traveling with the Apostle Paul. And, you know, there were some not-so-pretty things that happened. You know, you get stoned, drug out, left for dead. You get shipwrecked. You know, they was beaten with rods. He's arrested frequently. All of these things that are happening. And, and Timothy's along, not for all of those, but for many. 
Not only did he see all those difficulties, but he saw God do glorious things and people getting saved and churches getting established. And they even go back and revisit them and see those churches establishing other churches and the gospels going forward. And Timothy's along for that journey. Paul's locked up. He's not getting out this time. He's pretty sure of it. He's pretty sure this is going to be the end of the road. And in many ways, he's simply saying, Timothy, it's your turn. It's your turn, Timothy. Just remember, you went along and you heard, and he's using the Hebrew reality of her, okay? Not heard like you just heard a lot of things, Timothy. Maybe you remembered a few. You internalized truth all along the way, Timothy. You heard it preached. You saw it lived out. You saw God's power at work changing lives, churches being established, churches being... Timothy, you saw it all. You know this gospel that was entrusted because Paul was always mindful that he was called of God and given this gospel of God. The gospel message belongs to God. Paul would emphasize that over and over. It's not our message. It doesn't belong to us. It's not a marketing ploy. It's not a trick. We don't use the wisdom of men. We use the power of God. We proclaim Christ crucified. We proclaim that truth. We guard that truth. It's a divine entrustment that now we're called on to entrust to others. Take that deposit entrusted to us and entrust it forward. Protect it, preserve it, pass it on accurately, give it to another generation who will give it to yet another generation. And we sit here today because God's people have obeyed God's command. That truth has been guarded, it's been protected, it's been passed forward by men like Timothy who traveled with Paul, who Timothy trusted to others, who then traveled and trusted it to others. And so he makes emphasis that obviously has to deal with pastoral reality because you're looking for men who are faithful men who are able to teach, which gets right into pastoral qualifications if you walk back into 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so there's a primary application in that regard. And here's the thing. I work at a seminary who has come here. Part of the reason God burdened my heart to come and lead pastoral ministry and be a part is to train and a burden for training another generation of pastors. But here's what I know. The church is the primary place that's supposed to be doing that. And as a seminary, we're simply partnering with churches to help young men get ready for ministry. But we are to be raising up new leaders spiritually. We're to be engaged in in taking the wisdom that God has taught us, the things we have heard and been taught, and the truths we've internalized, and we're entrusting it on to another generation. And while that has a lot of application to pastoral ministry, it's not limited there. The reality is, is you've been called of God. You, if you know the Christ, have actually been called of God to take this gospel message and share it forward. I mean, Paul is reminding Timothy and of what exactly is true in his life. God met him on the road to Damascus and saved him and changed that rebel's life and commissioned him to the ministry and trusted him with the gospel. And Paul saw Timothy and others come to Christ and he is doing what God did with him and trusting them and equipping them with that gospel message to take it forward. Timothy, the gospel came to me, Paul would be saying, on its way to you. And it came to you on its way to someone else. So who's that someone else for you? Who is it in this community that needs Christ that by God's grace you're going to be that someone who through your testimonial faith they will be brought to faith? Isn't that what God said? He has other sheep he must bring in. 
And they're actually going to come through the testimony of the faith of his people. Hasn't he called on us to go make disciples of all nations? But that always starts right here. Starts in Jerusalem, doesn't it? Starts right here. And while it may seem, you know, I'm glad to support foreign missions. Thankful for those God calls all over the world. But dear church, please never think our spirituality is measured by a, by a missions budget. Your commitment to the gospel is not measured by a, by a missions budget. Your commitment to the gospel is measured by your relationship to unsaved people in this community. If we have no relationship to the unsaved in this community, then we fool ourselves about our commitment to the gospel. It starts here. That the gospel came to you on the way to someone else. Paul's reminding Timothy of that. He's always connecting that divine privilege and reminding Timothy of the privilege it was to be called in ministry, fan the flame of the gift given. Remember, Lord, the, the God's calling. Paul referred that way to his own gifting. I'm sorry. Back in Romans, he would talk that way. He received grace and apostleship. So he received grace. That grace then called him to ministry, and that grace actually enabled him to do the ministry that brought about the results of salvation, the obedience of faith. That's what it brings. That it transforms people's lives. His life was transformed. Timothy's life has been transformed, and that pattern of living needs to continue. So we have this great commission living that is illustrated in Paul's life to Timothy's life, and it is something we are to replicate. So here's the question. In 30 years of pastoral ministry, I can probably count on one hand, maybe even less, the times that a church member ever asked me to pray that God would send forth people out of our church into vocational ministry. Yet we know Jesus actually said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers in the harvest field. Those are actually direct what Jesus told us to pray about. I've been in pastoral conferences where we prayed that way. But I don't think more than a handful of times has anybody in church ever asked for us to pray as a church, for God to call people out of our congregation into the harvest field. Now, here's the other thing. When we start praying for God to send us in the harvest field, remember it's all around you. And you're actually praying for yourself to get up and actually get out in the harvest field that's all around you. Not just that God would call men to vocational ministry. That God would actually move, that his spirit would move in the hearts of his people, that we would be like Acts 4, shaken filled with boldness, and go out and speak the word of God with that boldness. That's actually what God wants us to do in our community. And to pray for God to do that in this community, even sending people to the ends of the earth with the gospel. And so I'm excited about really the reception we've had in canvassing, looking at planning forward, and one of the things I'm working on and just working with Pastor on this is actually having some folks that are just really burdened about this community around us and making strategic planning on how we're going to get out continually, get in front of people, go back and follow up with the people God's opening doors to so that it's more than we just, oh, we feel good about ourselves. We went and knocked on our neighbor's door once. If all we do is knock on our neighbor's door once, we really don't care. 
We need to care about the people in this community. Go back to the doors the Lord's opening. God's going to open up some divine appointments, isn't he? Does he have other sheep in this community or not? If he doesn't, maybe we should move communities. I don't think the community is the problem. I think there are sheep in this community God intends to save. Amen? He put Gateway here to be a part of that. A light in this community with the gospel. So let's go get to know our community. Let's engage with the gospel with the boldness that God would give. Grace enables us to be faithful teachers of the word. The end of the Great Commission is teach those things God has taught you, right? What sort of things I've taught you teach? So Great Commission living looks that way. Look that way for Paul, look that way for Timothy. It's supposed to look that way for us. And then he says it enables us to be good soldiers. You know, we, we, this is one of those statements that we'd like to erase. If we had the magic eraser marker, this is one of those we'd like to get rid of. You know, endure hardness. Do I have to? I like comfort. I like convenience. I like my drive through window, and it's ready when I get to the other side. I like my cushy couch. I like the comforts and convenience of living in an American economy that provides me a better living than 90% of the whole world. Or live like a soldier. I don't know if I want to live like a soldier. That's a hard life. But it's a graceful life. It's what grace actually enables. You want to not be distracted by the world around you, be filled with grace. Why? Because grace teaches you to say no to worldliness. Maybe that's why we don't pray for grace much. We like the world we live in. I don't want to say no. Grace actually causes me to say no to worldly living. It causes me to live a God-honoring life. It causes me to embrace this idea of a soldier who endures, doesn't quit, I mean, you have stories, famous stories, American history stories we could go back to. I mean, you know, how many of you named your child Benedict? Wasn't one on your top list? You know, little Benedict Arnold? You just wasn't one of those names. You just said, oh, that's one of those great names in American history. We all want to be Benedict. We could go down and through history and pick names out that we don't name children because they're famous traitors. They're deserters. What does he say? You endure hardness, you don't quit. As a good soldier, and anytime you see that word good, I hope, I hope one of the words echo in your heart is Jesus' words to the rich young ruler. Why call you me good? What is your definition of good? To be a good soldier is actually one, again, part of what grace enables is to be found because grace is something aesthetically pleasing. A grace-filled life is pleasing to God. And so to be a good soldier, life must be found being that which actually is found well-pleasing to God. So he endures hardness as a good soldier that no man that warth entangles himself with the affairs of this life. They may please him who chose him. And so he gives three. If you want to know what a good soldier is, he defines it in three ways. Pretty simple. An enduring faith. If your faith doesn't endure, it's not real. Your faith will be put to the test. In fact, Peter even reminds us that, that the testing of your faith is more precious than gold because that faith that endures, you know it's real. You know it's real. You've trusted Christ. You've been through the trials. You've walked through those waters and your confidence rests in him. 
not in you. And so that enduring faith is of eternal value. And so good soldiers are willing to face the adversities of life on a battlefield for the sake of their king. Are you? We face the adversity of life in a fallen world for the sake of our king. Our God is king. The true king. In fact, the king of kings. And it causes us to look beyond temporal suffering to the fact that our king has actually promised reward. So we have an enduring faith. That's the nature of genuine faith. It endures. But it not just endures, it actually avoids distractions and will remain steadfast under fire. You're going to be under fire. The world is going to resist. The devil does not like you to live by faith. The world around does not like their sin exposed. Just try it. I mean, we're having, I mean, whether this is going to come to South Carolina or not, I don't think anytime soon. But I don't think the people in Arizona saw this one coming. Major Christian University there in Arizona has been, been providing public, their teachers have been teaching uh, their, what is it, their student teaching. Thank you. They've been doing their student teaching for 11 years in the public school district. This public school district just canceled it. Why? Because there's ever been a problem? There's been zero complaints in 11 years from anybody about any of the students. No administrative complaints, no student complaints, no family complaints, zero complaints. But they are not going to do business with them because of their convictions about sexuality. So they are being canceled. That may happen here. You know, we have nurses that are in nursing practicums. You've got teachers that are doing teaching practicum. They're student teaching. We have a whole lot of internships that happen. The continuation of the woke culture equals like you cannot have a stand in public culture on these issues without it costing you something. So what are you going to do with that? Endure hardness or a good soldier? Or, well, I'll separate my public life from my spiritual life is what they're trying to get you to do. If your spiritual life can be separated from your public life, it's because you don't have a spiritual life. Because your core of who you are is a follower of Jesus Christ. If your core of who you are is a pleaser of men, it means you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. The culture around us will not determine what I do. It's going to try and silence you. It's going to try and it's not worth it. But it cannot define what you do, or it defines who you are. Good soldiers avoid distraction. They remain steadfast under fire. And they have one fundamental ambition in life, one, to please the one who called them. That he may please him who chose him to be a soldier. And that is also a reminder that God called you of all the people in the world. He called you. He opened your blinded eyes. He saved you. You don't belong to you anymore. You belong to him. And we are to spend our life well for him. And that's what it means to be a good soldier. And here's the thing. Grace enables that. You don't have to to get that courage up. It's not in you. Let me say, hey, the opposition living in this world and as, uh, the higher the price comes for standing for Christ, I mean, nobody's asking you for you to wear, you know, the martyr sign or like when I was in school, you know, you put the sticker on the guy's back, kick me and he walked down the hall and people kicked him. 
and he's wondering, why are all the people kicking me? Because you've got a sign on you. Nobody's asking you to go out there and say, I want to be abused, I want to be persecuted, I want to be belittled, I want to be silenced. Nobody's asking for you to go ask for it, but what God is preparing you is that grace is sufficient for you to actually endure in the midst of that hostility without compromise. Isn't that good news? You don't have that strength in you, and if you think you do, you're going to fail. But that strength is available to you because the Spirit of God does not leave you nor forsake you. You can endure in the midst of a hostile culture because of grace. And so we come, and the more the hostile culture rises up, we better be found at the throne of grace begging God, please strengthen me. I need your grace to strengthen me that I yield to your spirit and I actually walk a life of spirit control. Because then I can endure, then I can labor for your glory, then I will stand under the fire. Think of David's mighty men and Shamgar stood in a field of lentils, a field of beans. He stood in a pretty worthless field. They were all over the place. Why did he stand there? Because it belonged to his king. Why do we stand? Because we belong to our king. We don't compromise his word for the sake of the approval of man. Why? Because it's his word. And we live for his glory. And we can, two quick other illustrations we end with. He pushes into an athletic metaphor, then. Now, you know, we could just go down the laundry list of, of people who won medals in Olympics later to be found cheated. We could take the people who used enhanced, you know, the various sports enhancing drugs and we find out later that the reason they endured so long, rode so fast, hit so many home runs was because they were using things that enhanced their abilities illegally. And you could look at it and go, well, they got away with it. No, they didn't. Even if we don't catch them, they didn't get away with it. Besides that, all those temporal accolades just fade. Somebody else is going to do it better than they did. But the bottom line is, here's the reality. There is one whose crown you really do want, and it is not the crown men give. There's a victor's crown coming for the victors, amen? And actually, if you don't live life under his authority, by his rules, you don't get the crown because you haven't lived by faith. Faith actually lives under his authority for his glory and will receive a crown. And we know that we don't like it when we hear about athletes who stole glory illegally. And when they get exposed, there's some level of rejoicing in that. Unless they were your favorite athlete, and then you're like, well, I really wish he hadn't done that. But he still was great in his day. But you are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And those who receive the crown, who are awarded by the king, have lived for his glory and not their own. That's what grace enables. And we can see, and I could go, the, the metaphor, and I just end here, and, and you see the runner metaphor, and I know Doug runs marathons, you know, part of the goal of the marathon is to finish. You don't train all that hard just to run halfway and say, oh, that's good. Kind of got a good run in. That's good. No, I actually went out to run to finish. Folks, you're in the marathon. That doesn't end until glory. Keep running. 
If I want to borrow from the movie, just keep on swimming, right? Just keep on swimming. But we are to run, because there is a way to run that you won't obtain the prize. You do know that, right? I mean, there's plenty of bad soldiers that received all the right training, but under fire, they quit. I mean, they ran away. They deserted. And I worked on a college campus in high school as an unsaved young young guy, and, and I could just tell you some really gruesome stories from Vietnam about what they did to the soldiers who quit. About when they jumped out of the helicopter and they saw the guy in front of them start running for cover. The guy behind them usually eliminated him because he was going to get other people killed. Because that bad soldier got all the same training, but under fire, he ran. He deserted. You will be put under fire. Will you endure? Will you finish the race? Will you get distracted, go off course? Will you be the next distracted driver who finds himself under a semi? Will you be that distracted, quote, Christian who actually doesn't value Christ, but values the world? Because Paul ends it by remembering he keeps his body under self-control because that is a fruit of the Spirit. That's a product of grace. It's not a self-product. Because at the end of the day, Paul says, I don't want to be a dakamas, one proven not to have faith. A life filled by grace is the proof that your faith is real. And Paul says that fruit of a real faith is going to be evident in my life because at the end of the race, I don't want to prove to be false. And grace enables us to, to receive the crown It enables us to be a hard-working farmer. For those who grew up in a farm community, I don't want to insult you of my ignorance. But the reality is the farmer works hard every day with anticipation of a crop to come. Sometimes they come and sometimes they don't due to no fault of their own. We labor in the work of God, anticipating fruit that sometimes it will come and sometimes it won't. But we labor for the fruit that is certain. And the fruit that is certain is the fruit we will receive from the hand of God for being faithful, good soldiers, hardworking farmers. That we don't allow, I mean, the hardworking farmer at the end of the day, I mean, they might sell their farm because they had that year that just bankrupted them. But as a general rule, when the year comes where the crops aren't in and everything's tight, they tighten the buckle, they work harder the next year. Because they know at the end, God, there's, there's a fruit that they are anticipating and they don't quit working. No matter how hostile the culture around here gets, no matter how many times you've had the door closed of somebody you've witnessed to, don't ever believe God sees saving people. Labor in the middle of that harvest field like the hardworking farmer, anticipating the day the seed will come in. Don't stop sowing the seed. You will never get a harvest if you stop sowing the seed. Don't get distracted from the mission. You've been called to a glorious mission that rescues sinners forever and they get forever life. You've been called to a rescuing mission about dying people who are dying forever and spending it in hell. And you've been called to go forth with a glorious gospel commissioned by God with a promise of fruit that will come. It's worth laboring for. 
Grace enables you to labor with that anticipation as a hardworking farmer who endures the hardness, as a good soldier who doesn't quit, as a runner who doesn't get distracted and go off course. You can be a crowned athlete, a hardworking farmer, a good soldier, a faithful teacher when you're strengthened by grace. I hope that's what we want. I hope that's the way we pray. May God put that in our hearts to pray that way and see the fruit, a graceful life, a life full of grace through which God is glorified and his church is built up. Let's pray.